Hey, Sound Opinions listeners, if you support us on Patreon, you get to listen to our podcast ad-free on Patreon. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're revisiting our conversation with music journalist Jan Uhelski about the legendary Cream magazine. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. But first, some new music from Curtis Harding and Super Chunk. That is a track called Hopeful from the new Curtis Harding record, If Words Were Flowers, the third studio album from this uh, Michigan-raised artist. His mom was a a, a traveling gospel performer, so uh, Curtis has got it in his blood, music in his blood anyway. Uh, They moved around a lot when he was a kid. He ended up in Atlanta, and uh, he started working with OutKast. Not a bad little deal. (laughs) And the Black Lips. They liked his singing, yeah. Black Lips um, became part of CeeLo Green's team, Mm -hmm. performed on a couple of uh, studio albums, was the backing vocalist on a number of his tours, a co-songwriter on a number of albums. You, you mentioned the the collaborations with uh, Cole Alexander, Black Lips. Um, got a late start in terms of his own career. It wasn't until 2014, he was already in his 30s, when he came out with his solo debut, Soul Power, and then Anti Records signed him. Um, Face Your Fear was a 2017 album that really brought him to a wider audience. It was produced by Harding in collaboration with Danger Mouse, mm. who in turn introduced Harding to his collaborator, Sam Cohen, who has worked with people like Nora Jones, The National, Shakira, Bob Weir, and Cohen sort of took over as a producer, and he, in fact, produces this album. In between, uh, Harding went on the road with Lenny Kravitz and Jack White. A lot of buzz around this record. Uh, yeah. came out uh, later part of last year, Jim. I wanted to get to it because I think it was a good one that I didn't want allowed to slip through the cracks. It did. It slipped through our cracks, and, and we uh, are making amends now. Absolutely. So here's a little bit of a track from If Words Were Flowers by Curtis Harding. It is called Can't Hide It on Sound Opinions. From bending down. That is Can't Hide It from Curtis Harding's 2021 release, If Words Were Flowers. The title, Greg, you neglected to say, came from something his mom used to always say to him. Um, This is a record about hope. We played, we bumped in with Hopeful. Uh, Now in this present darkness, all ears just listen, Curtis raps. Wait a minute, you're saying? I thought he was a soul singer. He's a soul singer. He's a crooner. He's a shouter. He's a rapper. Uh, he's a spoken word artist at right. times. What if one day 
love couldn't be found. He searched the highest mountain, even looked underground. You couldn't quite prove it as a natural fact. It just up and vanished with no sign of coming back. His voice is truly amazing. This is in the great soul tradition of, uh, uh, you know, name your favorite, you know, Stax Volt, any of the 60s soul records, the Motown era uh, as well. Uh, But it's never retro looking. He's very much about living in the moment. And he has subtly evolved over these three solo albums that he's been putting out. This one, has uh, more orchestration at times, choral Mm -hmm. harmonies, horns and strings, uh, a little bit of a jazzier feel, and just this fundamental belief that you and I share, that many Sound Opinions listeners share, that making music itself is an act of life affirmation and hope, Mm -hmm. right? I am making this joyful noise. I am here. I am glad to be alive. Not that everything's sunny. There's some (laughs) classic soul heartbreak records here or or Mm. songs of longing uh you know he's he's not quite fulfilled in his romantic uh, relationships um but he's hopeful he's always hopeful and the musical uh realization of this spirit makes for just an incredibly uplifting and uh, really well produced well orchestrated well arranged album it's a it's a classic yeah, it's a it's a fine record. Uh, you mentioned hope. That's a big theme on the record, but it's not Pollyanna-ish hope. No. You know, it is no. uh, mixed with anxiety, which does, you know, reference classic soul. And I got to say, that first record was aptly named Soul Power. It, that was a retro soul record. Mm-hmm. He's made some advances since then. I think working with Sam Cohen, yeah. uh, his producer, the string arrangements, those brass the, arrangements, the choral, the the choral, choral backing. Yeah. By the way, you know who works on the string arrangements on this record? No. Sasami. Ah. An artist we just reviewed, fantastic multi-instrumentalist slash producer, yeah. whose record we just reviewed, uh, while in her spare time, she did the string arrangements on the Curtis Harding record. So I thought that was pretty cool. So this modern feel brought to a classic formula. Absolutely. And, you know, the fact that he's able to, you know, you, you mentioned the whole, what, what is he exactly, a singer, a rapper? CeeLo Green was the one who said, you don't have to choose. You right. can do it. You can do everything. You can do it. CeeLo, not a man with a great voice, but he pulls it off. Well, you know, he, actually, I think he does have a great yeah, I, voice, I but he's he also a rapper, and, he, you know, he's, he's everything in between. And, and Curtis Harding took that to heart as well on this record. So the arrangements, uh, beautiful, lush. Uh, at the same time, the, you know, there's a thoughtfulness to the lyrical content. It's not just one uh, hopeful theme, but mixed in with that anxiety that I mentioned. Echoes of the recent work by M- Michael Kiwanuka yeah. and Salt, you know, the mm-hmm. uh, Leon Bridges, I think. Very too, different. Kind, yeah, the, the same kind of vibe. If you love those records, you're going to love this one. You know that adenoidal voice. It is Mac McCon of Super Chunk. The song is City of the Dead from the new Super Chunk album, Wild Loneliness. 
good luck trying to count up all the records in Super Chuck's yeah. discography since they first came together. Three decades worth. Three decades. Early 90s, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Mac McCon and Laura Balance being the longtime driving forces and the founding uh, entrepreneurs mm-hmm. of Merge Records. Uh, if that ain't bragging rights in the world of indie rock, then nothing is. Superchunk, uh, I think we reviewed them last in 2018 with What a Time to Be Alive, which marked uh, one of the many subtle variations on the basic super melodic punk indie formula that they've pursued mm. since 1991. Uh, that was their political record. Right. Mac was angry, yeah. angry at the world, and all of us were in 2018. Uh, what are they doing that's different on Wild Loneliness? Well, we're going to get into that in our reviews, but I think uh, we ought to play a song first, Greg. And uh, Endless Summer is the one that uh, kept jumping out at me, uh, the uh, backing vocals. And then I, I only read in the fine print somewhere, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, Norman Blake and Raymond McKinley of Teenage Fan Club right. are doing those harmonies right. with Mac. Um, let's uh, play this track. We'll give our reviews of Wild Loneliness in a second. Endless Summer from the new Super Chunk record, Wild Loneliness. As you mentioned, Jim, the members, uh, two of the members of Teenage Fan Club singing backing harmonies on those. You know, as soon as you see those names, you know this is going to sound good and upbeat. And it's, it's going to be kind of, yeah, right. you know, it's going <laughs> to make you feel good, right? Uh, and that that is generally the theme here. I mean, obviously, when, what a time to be alive. The previous Super Chunk record hit like a brick in the shins. Yeah. This one sort of floats down like a feather. You know, well, you know and they very different feel. They'd been there before because earlier in the mid 2000s, 2013, I Hate Music yeah. was an album about the death of a close friend of Mac and he was kind of raging against the dying of the light. Right. It, it's, I guess we could say it's been an angry past decade for Super Chunk. Certainly a more buoyant record in the way it feels, yes. the way it initially sounds, but there's still that thoughtfulness there. I mean, w- when you play a song like Endless Summer, you know, he's talking about the impact of climate change. You know, it's kind of like there's yeah. the city of the dead, remake the world when the old one dies. He's talking to his kids, I think, in some ways, you mm-hmm. know, refracting the imperfect art of compromise with the other side, mm-hmm. dealing like, how can I even deal with this opposition? What I see is the opposition to everything that I feel is right and good in the yeah. world. Um, if you're not dark, that's how he ends the album. <laughs> if you're not dark. In some little part What are you on? Can I have some Hold that the last few years have taken If you yeah. haven't been impacted by that You haven't been awake, you know? But, but you know, in the same way that Curtis Harding Is singing about yeah. hope Mac uh, is on this album looking at what comes after the anger and what comes after the despair. Well, let's look at this night. I just want to add one final note here. Okay. This night, what a song! Mm-hmm. I mean, get up and dance. You know, yeah. I mean that the, the the falsetto in Mac's voice, uh-huh. the the <laughs> fiddle in that song, totally unexpected. I'm going. 
yeah, let, let's, it's Sunday night, let's dance, let's dance yeah. together. And I, I love that sentiment, like, we're going to get through this. And music is going to be the tool that helps us. You know, the genius of a song, and it is genius, of like Endless Summer, it is on the one hand a song about we are heating this planet to a point where it's going to be unlivable. We're never going to see the leaves change again. There's going to be no more hummingbirds, right? And on the other hand, it's philosophical in the sense that without darkness, we wouldn't appreciate the good times. Mm -hmm. We've had more than our share of darkness over the last several years. So what comes next? That's the recurring question throughout the entire album, what comes next? Whereas musically, you mentioned the fiddle. I'm here in Mac being inspired by this little band uh, uh, that basically he introduced to the world. There's a little arcade fire in terms of the orchestral pop. Yeah, a little or- more expansiveness. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but, and yet, it always comes down to one thing. John Worcester snare drum. <laughs> Man, that guy is the king of the backbeat. Man, uh, the drive and the optimism measured by the realities of the moment make this yet another great uh, Super Chunk record. Yeah. Three decades, and they've never sucked. I agree, and uh, we mentioned Worcester, great drummer. Uh, we should mention Jim Wilbur, who's been yeah. you know, the lead guitar player in the band, and Laura Balance, yes. who doesn't tour with the band anymore, but still runs Merge Records with Mac and is the bass guitarist on all their studio records to this day. So this has been a great band, and we need to celebrate Super Chunk in the fact that that longevity, with essentially the same lineup for, for those 30-plus yeah. years, that's pretty an amazing run. Very high marks for the Curtis Harding and Super Chunk records from both of us. And now we want to hear from you, our listeners. Share your thoughts in a voice message at our website, soundopinions.org, so we can play it on the show. Coming up, we're going to review the new record from Marin Morris and chat with Jan Uhelski about Cream Magazine. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. And if you're not dark. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I am Greg Cott. He is Jim DeRigatis. That is a little bit of Circles Around This Town, the lead-off track from the new Marin Morris record, Humble Quest, the Texas-born singer-songwriter. Uh, she's been around for since 2005. Her first record yeah. came out when she was a teenager. And man, oh man, what a run the last few years have been for Marin Morris. Uh, major label debut in 2016 called Hero, her fourth album overall, won a boatload of awards then came the middle in 2018 where she did a cameo on an edm track by zed <laughs> and that thing just went crazy i mean it he did huge numbers number five and, and suddenly Marin morris is you know more she's kind of entered the zeitgeist she's not just yeah. a country singer anymore she's a, a pop culture figure uh capitalized on that attention with a really good record in 2019 called girl Four million selling record. In this day and age, selling four million records? Yeah. That's pretty good. Who buys music? Exactly. Well, apparently Marin Morris fans do. Uh, since then, you know, she's become a new mom. She lost a dear friend and collaborator in Michael Busby. And oh, yeah, the pandemic, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a lot of this is going into what the new record is. Uh, Humble Quest is the name of the record, and the track is called Nervous from Marin Morris on Sound Opinions. You make me... 
That is a little taste of Nervous from the new Marin Morris album, Humble Quest. Greg, uh, I'm so glad we bumped in with Circle Around This Town. Uh, that is a killer opening track on this album. And uh, Marin wins me over right away, uh, talking about driving around in a Mitsubishi <laughs> Montero with the air conditioning broke. Uh, and Nervous is this good, creepy, insinuating rock track. Those are my two favorite moments on this album. There are some very bad moments balancing it off. I can't love you anymore. Uh, I can't love you anymore. I can't love you anymore. I can't love you anymore than I do now. And Humble Quest... You know, Marin um, is outspoken, as befits a, mm-hmm. a woman who was a member of the High Women, right? Right. Teaming up with Brandy Carlisle, Amanda Shires, Natalie Hemby. We love that record uh, when it came out in 2019. You know, she got some flack for saying her mind on uh, Twitter, mm-hmm. and now she's on a humble quest. I should keep in mind who I am. No, you shouldn't. You should let it blurt, mm-hmm. Marin Morris. Let yeah. it rip. Um, and she is torn between... Uh, you know, th- this kind of politeness that dominates mainstream Nashville and something a little harder rocking, which mm-hmm. we hear on, you know, Circles Around This Town and Nervous, the two best tracks. You know, others are really dismissible. Hummingbird. And I'm going to blame Greg Kirsten, right? Yeah. You know, this is the man who brings us Adele. This is the man who brings us Kelly Clarkson. It is all pop. And Marin in the pre uh release publicity was talking about how proud she was of making a quote-unquote pure country record Mm. this one has dobro on it i've never played uh uh, never used dobro in it's like like, this doesn't sound like country this sounds like that watered down mainstream schlock of nashville that all i blame on the eagles you know yeah, well, in that sense, it is kind of mainstream country because that's what uh, mainstream country is now. It's sort of like a pop rock version pop, of, yes. of, of Eagles, uh, you know, writ large for, for, for the 21st century, whatever that means. But, yeah. you know, I think she was aiming for something like a golden hour Casey Musgraves record, you know, sort of that. And I, I wish it was that good. Yeah. Uh, the, that record kind of got that right. And, and it's interesting because that record was very much about new love, mm-hmm. Casey Musgrave singing about falling in love and making it sound kind of cool and, and interesting and, 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 you know, hazy, psychedelic almost. Yeah, but, but, um, but falling in love on her terms. Right, and Marin's basically writing a, a series of love songs on this album. You know, she's, yeah. you know, she's thrilled with being a mom and a, and a wife and, 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 and singing about the joy of that. And there's also songs about mortality which could be it could could be gut wrenching if they were done in a little bit more of a emotionally direct style. The Kirsten touch here tends to put everything in sort of this kind of little glossy box. Yeah. And as a result, we get sort of an emotional distance that I don't think was intended. I think you're absolutely right. There's a couple of moments here where you hear that gutsiness that Marin Morris is so good at when she wants to be. She's got spark and life. I mean, what she did with that EDM song was just like, you know, <laughs> the middle, damn, the middle, she owned yeah. that thing. She turned yeah. this kind of, you know, production number into something personal and real. 
And uh, I don't hear enough of that on this record. Are I'm, we I'm falling, disappointed. Are we falling into an anti-mainstream Nashville rut? Because we had the same complaint with Dolly Parton's new album. Yeah, you know. It's like, just take away the gloss. It's almost like you can't escape the rules of that town. It, it's like they, they, they still get you. Like, if you're yeah. going to make a record in Nashville, you almost have to play by their rules, even when you're not in Nashville making it. If you want to get, they, they realize country music is their base and you got to appeal to country radio somehow. And that's disappointing. Now we're going to turn back to a conversation we had in 2020 about one of the great music magazines of all time, Cream. Uh, that year, 2020, a documentary came out, and we chatted with our longtime friend and former Cream staffer, really founder, co-founder at that magazine, uh, Jan Uhelski. We discussed its history and the impact the mag had on readers and the music industry. For the entirety of its run, uh, which lasted from 1969 to 1989, Cream operated in the Detroit metropolitan area. The writers were a bunch of misfits and nerds, yeah, but yeah. Uh, most importantly, serious music fans uh, who cared about giving readers their genuine opinions on what albums to listen to and love and how to spend their money. So many great music writers worked at Cream, including Jim's hero, Lester Banks. That's right, Greg, but he was far from the only one. I even wrote a few things for Cream myself at the end of its run. You know, you had great artists like Patti Smith and Lenny Kay and Peter Lochner contributing to the magazine and some legendary names in criticism and journalism in the music field, Nick Tosh's, Robert Criscow, as well as the people who were on staff at the magazine. It really felt like an egalitarian environment where rock stars, critics, and fans were one and the same. Another iconic Cream Magazine writer has been a friend of ours for many years, Jan Uhelski. Jan has uh, several decades of excellent music journalism under her belt and was an integral part of making this documentary. Jan, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you. I want to know what Greg Cott thinks about the Cream documentary, but mostly we want to tell the story of Jan's incredible, inspiring career. Absolutely. And uh, Jan, I think what uh, is intriguing to me, you're such a, a young critic, pioneering critic, and here you come aboard what became one of the most iconic publications uh, of the last 50 years, uh, especially when we're talking about pop culture and rock music specifically. What was that like coming into Cream Magazine in its infancy? You started out soon after the magazine was formed, right? It started in March of, of 69, and I got there officially in October of 70. But any road I could get in there, I was going to take. And it all began because I was a Coca-Cola girl at the Grandy Ballroom, which is a <laughs> ballroom like the Fillmore. And the thing that was really important about that job was it was the heyday of LSD. So we would pour out soda, and my primary job was to make sure no one dosed it. So, which, 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 yes. which happened all the time. Now, we are talking Detroit, and, uh, you know, we are talking the, the famous venue that gave birth to the MC5. Then the Stooges would play there, Bob Seger, a, a really iconic rock venue, and you're selling Coke. A cola. <laughs> Coca-Cola, yes. Yeah, I'm selling Coca-Cola. I'm bringing little plastic cups of Coca-Cola to the Velvet Underground. High point of my Coca-Cola career. Wow. But what was important was right next to the bar was a little kiosk 
where they sold cream magazines. Barry Kramer, the publisher, also had a head shop and a record store. So every weekend, they would haul all of their goods, which included cream magazine. So in my innocence, I would give them free sodas and I'd go, okay, if I give you this free orange pop or I give you this Coca-Cola, can I write for cream? Oh yeah, no problem. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) For free, they they neglected to tell you that, yeah. So um, that was my first little tentacle into their world. And then the second one was I started going out with the art director. So he started bringing me to Cream Magazine and this was like early 1970. So while I was there, the publisher, Barry Kramer, they were always strapped for cash. In fact, after the first three issues, they had to suspend publication because they didn't have money for the printer or any circulation or anything. And I said, I've got this great idea. I could make some t-shirts. I have a friend whose dad is a printer. I can sell them. I won't take a cut. And even better, I've got a teenage sister who will go door to door and sell them. (laughs) (laughs) So a little band of, well, they were in junior high. They were 11. I lied about the age. They went door to door and they sold a tremendous amount of cream t-shirts. There's a lot of originals out there. The ones that you see on eBay are actually ones Joanne Uhelski sold. And um, I went back to Barry and I said, okay, can I have a job? And he goes, yeah, you can be the subscription kid. So all of my great entrepreneurial efforts landed me in the business part of Cream. It was unique because nobody else had a title. Nobody was editor. Nobody was editor-in-chief. Nobody was publisher. This was egalitarian magazine of the people. We are the, the people's, rock and roll is the people's culture. We are the people's magazine. So only you, you had a title. And I was probably the youngest person there. It was more like people would come up into the office all the time, as in the hoi polloi, like readers, and and they would want to argue with us about a certain record. <laughs> or they had gotten some missive in their dreams, so they wanted to discuss it. That happened all the time. It was just a free-for-all. It was one of those things people asked me if I knew we were making history. I knew we were doing something different because those were those polarizing times where it was us and them, straights and heads. It was Ford and Chevy. It was Rolling Stone and Cream. It was a this and that world. And I knew that we were a subset of people that had no place else to go and had no other voice. And we were were their voice and we were their ears and we were actually just stand-ins for all the people who who read us. So there's an ethos there. There's sort of a culture. Uh, was that in place when you got there? And what's your sense of why that, why that happened? Was it strictly an accident or was there a vision behind it? I think that there was a vision. I really do think, much like Metallica in later years, is that we were outcasts. We weren't necessarily the popular kids. We were more the, the nerds or the... And if we were popular, it was popular for being odd. Like we're all a little off, a little odd a little like didn't fit into like normal mainstream society or mainstream teenagehood. So I think it was this lightning rod for the rest of us. I interviewed a a woman, Sandra Strutke. She's in the movie. She's Barry Kramer's first assistant. And she said, 
cream is a lot like Santa Fe. When people move to Santa Fe, they have the saying, you don't choose Santa Fe, New Mexico, Santa Fe chooses you. Well, the same thing about cream. A lot of people went through those doors wanting to work for cream and it just wasn't going to work. It's like, it was obvious from the minute you walked through there, whether you belonged or you didn't belong and you wanted to stay, despite the fact we only got paid in those early years about half the time. I can't wait another second. Your first day at work, you're one of two hires. Who's the other one? Lester Bangs, yes. He's wearing a brown suit because he's got a job, right? They said he looked like the shoe salesman he had been when he was working in tiny El Cajon, the suburb of of San Diego. You must have thought, who is this geek? I mean, he looked like a substitute teacher. He had a, a, a suitcase... And um, Roberta Kruger, who was also there, reminded me of this just yesterday, that he had a rope tied around his suitcase because he stuck so much stuff in it. <laughs> That's hilarious. I know, he's wearing a three-piece, three-piece suit with a vest, all buttoned up, shoes shined. It was He wanted to make an impression. And I just thought, oh, my God, we've hired a civilian. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't think he was going to make it. Yeah, I wasn't sure. Actually, people say they weren't sure he was going to make it. Like Dave Marsh um, told me recently that he didn't think that Lester would last. So um, I think the funny part is Lester outlasted Dave Marsh. So that, <laughs> yeah. that, that, that was the funny part. And becomes, and becomes known as, as sort of uh, the soul of the magazine, which is unjust in a way, because I made the point in The New Yorker uh, when I reviewed the film and wrote about those days. It, it was... From the beginning, if the New Yorker had the famous Algonquin roundtable, Dorothy Parker and Robert Benchley, Cream had the low-rent Algonquin card table, (laughs) right? Because Robbie Krueger, brilliant writer, funny, mainly writing about film, you uh, writing about everything, Lester, Dave Marsh, in the years to come, it was always a shifting ensemble of incredibly talented people with very strong voices who were allowed, Nick Tasha's was a contributor, so was Patti Smith, um, allowed to, in Nick's words, make a mess on the page. Mm -hmm. Have fun. You want to put makeup on and get on stage with uh, Kiss? Go for it, Jan. Well, we didn't have any trouble selling it. Like, another thing people tend to want to ask is, did you have to fight for those stories? It's like, no. I mean, there was no fighting. You just, you had a great idea. You were passionate about it. And light bulb went off somewhere in the middle of the night. And you told everybody else. And I go, yeah, you have to write it. I mean, how I actually got Kiss into the book was nobody wanted to write about them. And I had to make a hard case and actually promise that I would write about them. And I created a comic strip. Not that I was such a crazy fan of their music. It was one of those, you know, there's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time it's come. And that's what I thought about Kiss. And then I got such great license that they actually let me on stage with them, which I still think they were just out of their minds to say yes. You know? <laughs> and they know it now. They don't even like the fact that I was ever on, on stage with them. When we interviewed them for the documentary, they're like, yeah, she was up there. You know? Yeah. <laughs> So you're like, okay, first-person experiential journalism. Kiss is a comic book. What is it like to be a character in a comic book? Yeah, uh, you know what was funny? And this only struck me about 
two months ago is I went on stage with them and I am like all decked out and I realized that over all these years and that happened in 1975 not a single person in that audience ever noticed it wasn't in the the reviews of that show (laughs) it was like I staged a moonwalk like yeah. nobody knows that I was really on stage except that I came back from the front with the story of what it was like to put makeup on with, with four guys, you know, and have them insult me because I didn't know how to do it as skillfully as they did. <laughs> it, it was to me, it was crazy that no one noticed. But see, that's the brilliance of that piece, Jan. If cream was about anybody can do it, right? That piece uh, is very funny, and it's very personal about the makeup tips they're giving you, right? But it also underscores that uh, uh, rock and roll is mythology, right? Lester said famously, in rock and roll, there are no facts. There are only myths. So you were in the right makeup. You were on stage. Therefore, you were Kiss. That's right. I was Kiss, and I remain Kissette to this day. (laughs) (laughs) It's fascinating for people to realize this now, but the staff of Cream in general and the ethos of Cream sort of had this very complicated relationships with the people that they were writing about in that you were extremely critical of them, you were satirizing them, and at the same time loving them. How did that sort of come about, and how did you get away with it? How did they let you keep writing about them because they knew they were going to get harpooned sooner or later, right? (laughs) I think we always were slaves to the truth, and that actually leads into the rock stars are not our friends because if you're a writer, you want different things than what, what the rock star wants. You want to tell the truth or you want to be that conduit for fans. Like you were there as the representative of fans and you want to tell them the truth because you don't want them spending their allowance on something really lousy like an Ace album or, you know, or, or, or like a Joy of Cooking album or even like a Krabby Appleton album. James Taylor, marked yeah. for death, yeah. said Lester. Exactly. <laughs> So, so that was always a big part of who we were. We didn't want kids wasting their money because we're from a blue-collar town and you didn't have a lot of money to throw around. Uh-huh. And, and the, they did know what they were getting into. We once went to a press party, party for Slade and um, Lester incited a food fight. Oh. And I thought it just went there. Like that, I thought that was it. It was, a, it was a moment. We have photographs of it. It was actually... a one of those nights you always remember. And again, working on the movie, I unearthed a Slade review he wrote, and he wrote about the food fight. You know, so somehow whoever won the food fight really translated in how good the album was. He thought it was good. But it was like, it was like, I think there were devices that we created in order to talk about bands. And it was, I think that at that time, not just us, but that whole literati, New Yorkers, of, you know, Nora Ephron too, that you were as big a character in the story as the person you were writing about. So um, I think that we always thought we were no different than the people we were writing about either. I mean, we, we might have been our fans, which we were, and our readers, but we were actually the rock stars as well. Maybe with the exception of Tiny Tim and, and um, Mick Jagger, I think that rock stars are just like us. <laughs> yeah. 
After a short break, we'll continue our conversation with the one and only Jan Uhelski about Cream Magazine. Then we'll hear from Snail Mail about how she wrote one of her new songs on the album, Valentine. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. And we're back. And this week we're talking all things Cream Magazine with our friend Jan Uhelski. Jan was a writer for Cream in the early days, beginning in 1970, and I wanted to know what it was like to be one of the very few female rock critics in the field, and how she felt about the edgy and sometimes misogynistic humor that was prevalent at Cream at the time. It's like the Roger Rabbit quote, it's not a joke unless it's funny, and anytime we use sex or like, we had a lot of boob jokes, you know, like, like here's Wendy Williams and her three friends, you know, she'd be holding a basketball and then, you know, in a yeah. breath. <laughs> of the plasmatics. I think for me is I felt sometimes like a stealth operator. I didn't want to be branded a woman. I mean, my name is pretty androgynous as, as it is. But the fact is, is I wanted to work. I was home. I knew that this is where I wanted to be. And I wasn't going to get prissy and go, oh, that's just not politically correct, because there was not politically correct then. We were always going for jokes, no matter where the jokes were. I don't think that it's much like, I know I have a quote in the movie where I said, if we were politically correct, then 60% of the stuff would not have been in the magazine. I don't think it's that high, but we were always going for the laughs, smart laughs, not cheap laughs. Maybe the boob jokes were cheap laughs, but they were always funny. I mean, that's the one thing that was reliable about Cream. Everything on there was pretty timelessly funny. It really was more the descendant of Mad Magazine than anything. Oh, I don't know. If there weren't brilliant ideas, as I said, Jan, about your kiss piece, uh, if there weren't brilliant ideas at the heart of it, they may have been hidden under the joke. Um, but also, you're being nice to Greg. I've known you much longer. Uh, you know, you, you, you let him get away with that question. You know, I think um, of the... The five great women writers I've known in my life and had personal connections to, uh, my thinking has been shaped more by you than anybody. And what you always said to me is, I am not a pioneering female rock critic. I'm a great rock critic, period. Mm -hmm. You know, and I was like, yeah, right. But I have used a misogynist heavy metal type use their body weight against them because they wouldn't expect a woman who would come in a girl then a late teenager who would know anything about music so they would really you know ask me like when I would ask them a question they would just look blank and I would really use that that point of view to just get them later on you know that I would always get the last word because I was writing it and did I dress up to go? Yeah, I put on like tight jeans and tall boots and I was using every, everything in my arsenal. But I never played that. I did that more as a defense, as protective armor, because I know I've told you this story before, Jim. It's like, I mean, going into interview Rick Wakeman and he answers the door in a towel, you know, and he won't put clothes on, you know, like, like could you please put clothes on? No. And, um, you know... <laughs> Things like that happened a lot. Well, you were on the plane with Led Zeppelin, right, writing for Cream. You know, I mean, to have survived being on the plane a few times. It's like the press were the enemy. Largely, they ignored me. They weren't all that nice to me, you know. I mean, I really had to hone my observational skills, especially in that second tour I was on where Jimmy Page wouldn't speak to me until the afternoon that I was going home and it was a cover story. 
you know, and, and when I talked to him, I had to speak to him through an interpreter. <laughs> <laughs> That is so against the cream ethos that we are all one, rock star and writer and fan. I have to say it started out that way. It really did start out that way because there was no corporate rock. No one was making big money on rock and roll in those days, 1969. You know, it's like you haven't even had Altamont. Yeah, there are a few bands that you know you're not like because they live in Valhalla. But I just never thought that they were any different. I think that that's, again, something characteristically Detroit. You know, we don't really like to put people on pedestals. We're really happy to drag them off pedestals. <laughs> that, that is the core of what Cream was. And you got a, you got a lot of feedback on that. Joan Jett uh, famously writing a letter in and saying she's going to kill that guy who uh, wrote that nasty review. And it was a nasty review. So you had this dialogue going with the artist, which to me is what it's all about. You are starting a conversation when you're writing criticism. And that, that ideal, I think, is, has really lasted the, the generations. And at the time, it must have been fun, but was it daunting also to get that sort of instant feedback, like, hey, you wrote that nasty thing, I'm gonna go come and get you, I'm gonna find you, you know? Was, was there an intimidation factor at all? You know, that hasn't, haven't, hasn't even changed. Like, I was thinking about that, too. I wrote something about widespread panic, and damn if I didn't walk into a hotel lobby in my hometown and see the lead singer, you know, John Bell, wanting to talk to me about what I wrote. Like, I think there's always repercussions. I think you always have to write something with such total blunt honesty and just suffer the consequences, because nobody's going to be happy if you're not flattering them. Or maybe that's too strong a way to look at it. But you have to be always prepared to defend what you write or just stand by it. Mm -hmm. and, um, sure. So I think that um, I, I wasn't even surprised. Like Ted Nugent wrote us a couple of slam letters. I mean, Thurston Moore before it was Thurston Moore wrote that. But again, going through the archives, looking, looking at the letter sections just to prepare for the ones I was going to choose for the documentary, there were so many artists who wrote back to us all the time. John Lennon and Yoko wrote. You know, it, it was like, I don't know. There's sometimes I feel like I was in a bubble or maybe we all were and we didn't really think the things that happened were that odd. I mean, everyone seems to react to this story about when I was in the editorial office and Iggy Pop came in to see Lester and the publisher Barry Kramer is mad because Iggy doesn't say hello to him and, and you know, dumps a full trash can over his head. And, you know, when I even see that and I, I see it in, in a theater and people just roar with that and I keep going, yeah, that was just another day at the office. I mean, I'm not jaundiced or I'm not humble bragging or anything. It's just, it was really, that was what it was. We lived in a rock culture. We, we lived high drama. We really didn't have normal lives. I mean, we didn't start work till like 12 o'clock. We left the office if we left at all three in the morning. I mean, it was like we were on the road all the time, except that we were in Birmingham, Michigan, you know, like it was, we, we lived on barbecue and Dairy Queen, you know, we were like, <laughs> like trashy, trashy, like bass players, you know? What, uh, what's your sense of the, I mean, the magazine limped to a close, uh, in 1989, you know, the golden years were in the seventies, the eighties were tough. It finally closed shop in 89. Now there's the documentary. Um, and there seems to be, um, it seems to be one of those 
cultural artifacts that still seems cool to a lot of people. Uh, why do you think that is? I think it's valid and good for maybe five more years till 86 when there's the DiMartino, Bill Holtchip, Jay Kordash, Rick Johnson um, conglomerate of people. They're really talented. They are the boys club. It was more of a, you know, male female kind of energy like the Fleetwood Mac of rock magazines like the, in the first eras but by the time they have it it's like locker room humor it's it's like boy humor it's it's not as sex sexist or sexual as the earlier cream but it's it's very boy but it's really funny and I remember Jim you moderated a panel that I was on at South by Southwest where Dave Marsh told Bill Holship that that his era ruined our cream magazine. Like they, they couldn't hold the candle to um, what the early cream was. And, you know, I found with evidence that's not true. I mean, no, it's not. I mean, Jay Kordash's um, story about, about Rush is like a shining example. And there's so much. Dave DiMartino on, with uh, Captain Beefheart. Rick Johnson was hysterically funny. You know, I think cream was great until the day it died. I wrote two reviews. I wrote two Rocco Ramas. One was by this band nobody cared about, Jesus and Mary Chain. You know, I, I think I got a $50 check. And I was, you know, that's, I can retire now. <laughs> yeah, they, they were the one paragraph record review. And so for some people, it never got better than cream. And for other people, like you, um, you know, uh, it never stopped. And you carried that forward. Yeah. Well, you know, there weren't a lot of people who left cream that became civilians. You know, most of us did not go work in a furniture factory or, mm-hmm. or you know, become waitresses. We really stayed in. It, it really was. I mean, if it's cream chose you or rock writing chose you, I mean, it, it's calling it a calling is a little too, you know, uppity and... and <laughs> Uncream-like. Uncream-like. But, you know, once you're in, you're in. It's in your blood. Like, why would I want to do anything else? They thought, the people at Cream, that making music and writing about music was a moral duty, a moral task. And you still have that today, which is so inspiring to me always. The the fact is, is I always think that musicians' brains are wired differently than the rest of us, normal people, quote-unquote normal people. And Lester had this quote, and I'm going to read it because I I have it taped on my computer. That's how important this quote has been for me for years. It says, don't ask me why I obsessively look to rock and roll bands for some kind of model for a better society. I guess it's just that I glimpsed something beautiful in a flash bulb moment once and perhaps mistaking it for prophecy have been seeking its fulfillment ever since. I think that there's something prophetic about the lyrics or what you're hearing in music, there's something encoded from the beyond, something metaphysical, and it's passed through a musician. And for me, it's a way to live. It's, there's been a lot of wisdom and lyrics that have saved my life, you know, healed a broken heart, made me think in a different way. And I'm not the only one. There are so many of us that feel that way. You know, to this day, like I'm the same person at age 12 at the kitchen table trying to transcribe all the Beatles records lyrics <laughs> when it was released like I'm still that person so why would I not still do this Jan Uhelski super heroine what a treat to have you on Sound Opinions Jan you know we love you right I love you too all right
That's a little bit of the song Valentine by Snail Mail, the title track off her second album, which came out in November last year. Snail Mail, a.k.a. Lindsay Jordan, is a favorite musical act of our production intern, Mary Bernthal. Mary caught up with Lindsay to ask her about the unique sample she used for her song Forever Sailing. I forced that song into existence. Like we were running out of time in the studio and I was like, why well, don't I just make one more? Cause I have all these ballads like saved up and I was feeling like maybe the ballads were good, but like didn't necessarily fit into the record. So I wanted to make some kind of banger that like fit into the universe. And I was like playing out of ideas. I was like, okay, I'm just going to try to make a sample of something. I've never done that. And so Brad, the producer and I like cut up a sample to like just set it up. So all we had was the sample. And then I just made with the guitar created like a song around it and then recorded it in that way so I, I wrote it on it on a guitar the actual song that I'm sampling definitely was inspirational to me I remember hearing it and being like I really want to do something with this it's called you and I by this woman on um, Madeline Kane you and I like the ship forever sailing you and I always there and never I heard that song playing in a coffee shop and I was like super entranced. The barista like checked. I like got such a weird feeling from the second half of the song. Like I had to take some kind of action or something. I was like, I have to use this. So like the melody and the song itself, most of the lyrics kind of came into the fold before. And then by the time it was pretty much fleshed out, I finalized all the lyrics. You know, it was already a song before it started getting like produced, which is a big part of my process. I try to keep myself from getting lost in any kind of sauce, you know? <laughs> Thank you, Mary, for talking with Snail Mail. Mr. Cott, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, uh, we have a cornucopia of delights for you. <laughs> there, are so, there are millions of songs written with women's name in the title. Yeah. And we're going to pick a bunch of them that we really, really love. It's one of those, like, how could we have been doing this show so long and never <laughs> done great songs about women? For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo, and our Columbia College intern, Mary Bernthal. Our social media consultant is Katie Cott. See, I thought that I might keep you for my